If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, thank you very, very much for downloading, for listening, for streaming, or checking out this podcast. You know what time it is. It is Game Dev Unchained, the podcast, your number one source for video game development, lifestyle, and stories from said lifestyles. And guess who I brought this week? Special guest. He is the king of regifting, Mr. Brennan Hey, I am back again. Thank you, Larry, for inviting me for the 53rd fourth time <laughs> uh please welcome our special guest this week aj glasser Woo. hello nice to meet you hello there how are you pretty good welcome to the show oh it's a lovely podcast i was checking out some of your episodes i even spotted a typo in one of your descriptions oh Jeez. that was on purpose just to make sure <laughs> you're on point yeah just to make sure you're a real fan right like, yeah <laughs> you said also you wanted a games journalist and i what am i if i'm not pulling my weight Yes. yes. So, uh, Brandon, you want to do the classic Brandon introduction? <laughs> so, AJ Glass here joins us from the world of journalism. And this is an episode that Larry and I have both wanted to do for a very long time. Yes. But without butchering anything that she has to say, do you mind going back in your resume and kind of introducing yourself uh, to our audience? Sure. So I'm AJ. I've been a games journalist for almost a decade now. Um, I got my start kind of freelancing uh, for pennies on the dollar uh, while also working as a QA tester at um, Sony Computer Entertainment and later Sega of America. And then went on to write for GamePro Magazine. I wrote for Kotaku for a couple of years. Um, I wrote for Games Radar. Love those guys. And actually did a couple podcasts with them on Talk Radar. Oh, nice. And uh, more recently, I turned up at Inside Network. I managed their blog network, which included an entire section just on mobile games and also on Facebook games. And um, I edited the Sims official magazine for the first four issues because I am a huge Sims dork. (laughs) That is how I roll. Um, So that's really my professional career. Uh, I also like to do a lot of talking. I talk at GDC pretty regularly on the subject of free-to-play games and free-to-play game design. And I um, talk a bit at PAX about top women game characters and more recently on sex and sexuality in video games. That's a super fun topic. If you ever do a podcast on that, give me a call. Okay, Um, definitely. Yeah, so that's kind of what I'm about. But now I'm going to put on my journalist reporter hat and turn it back on you and say, why were you interested in doing a podcast on journalism? Oh, man. So let me start on this one. It's obviously as game developers, we're our careers are kind of tied to games journalism, right? Like I've worked for a couple of companies who part of the game contract will be, Hey, if you guys get a Metacritic score of X, we will give you a bonus of X. And so one of the ways to help, you know, start to generate buzz for your game or get people excited is to like give early previews of your games or software to journalists. And, you know, hopefully when they get their hands on it, they leave you a favorable review or tell the audience like, hey, guys, we really like this game. You should check it out when it comes out on Tuesday. Or, hey, guys, these guys suck. Don't buy the game when it comes out on Tuesday. Save your money for something else. Like it's a gamble. But, you know, obviously having a 
a piece of software that journalists do support is good for you as a developer. And so there are things, though, you know, in the games journalism industry, as I will say, as an outsider, I'll look in and say, man, I wonder if EA ever just like, hey, Kotaku, here's $2 million. <laughs> we need you to give us thumbs up on, like, all of our games for the rest of this year. You know, like, there's stuff that, that we wonder. That happened. I never got a cut. I'll oh. tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Well, so that answers one question. <laughs> So here's an, so here's a follow up I would have. Here's a really good journalism trick. Here's the follow up question. You said the games journalism industry. Uh, what is in your mind that industry? What is it made up of? Sure. Uh, wow. This is, dang. Welcome to AJ Glasses <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so in my mind, when I think of the games journalist industry, right? Like obviously you have writers who are employed, but then you also have people who secure stories or who secure content. So I'm assuming not all game companies just willy nilly contact every games journalist and try to get software reviewed. I mean, I, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's, I, I'm sure they do, but like, I bet you there is someone who at Kotaku is like, Hey, I think we have this rumor. Let me go follow up on that and see if we can get a comment out of Blizzard or, hey, you know, I heard that this project is like near ready. Let's see if we can get an exclusive. Like, I think both sides are like trying to peer over the fence and get in touch with each other for potential story opportunities. And then there's obviously people who do advertising and sales of like, hey, we have this game site. It generates, you know, one million unique views a month. Would you like to put our entire site as a banner for whatever game, we just put like a taco on top of that, but the background will be like battlefield one video or something like that. So, and then I don't know, maybe some sort of, I guess a lawyer, if you work at Gawker and then. Yeah. I think generally like (laughs) game developers, like I, I'm playing the general public of game developers. We really don't know too much about, unless we work in the marketing department, we really don't interact with journalists too much. Uh, just being on the floor making the game. Uh, and nowadays, especially with indie developers, I'm interested from that front because we have a lot of students, we have a lot of indie developers, and we have a lot of big-time developers who are thinking of going indie. Like, we're interested in just knowing what that world looks like on that side yeah. because there are three, I would say, different uh, parts of game development. There's the game developers there's journalism and now there's like a huge audience with you know gamers watching gamers playing games all that stuff and stuff so uh, it's really i have no idea what journalism is like so that's why we're asking you guys but we do have questions we We have a lot of questions questions. now we're going to turn it back to you (laughs) it'd be helpful to walk you through a history of games journalism so this is perfect This is a talk I've actually given at uh, UC Santa Cruz to their uh, Center for Playable Media. Um, I have given it also to indie game developers who constantly want to know, like, how do I get Kotaku to cover my game? And like you said, that blind fire that you described, Mm -hmm. like just email willy-nilly, cover my game. You'd be surprised at how that can actually work. Because sometimes you get lucky and sometimes the reporter needs to hit their quota for the day and they're not there yet. Or Mm -hmm. the story they were working on fell through or got spiked. So, you know, never say never. If you've got a preview code to give out, why not, right? Uh, Uh, Can I I just go and get my pen and paper really quick? I'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's walk it back to 19 80s about um, games journalism technically existed before then and i think in the popular science might have been the first uh publication to have like a game review in it but wow. for our 
to keep things simple and sane, we're just going to talk about shit like Atari Age and Nintendo Power. These are publications back in the 80s that are all about marketing. Mm -hmm. It's screenshots, it's walkthroughs of games, um, and kind of around the late 80s is where you started to see the cheat list and the rise of like the map publications so people could actually, you know, be better at the thing that they bought Mm -hmm. um, outside of deciding whether or not to buy the thing. They were owned by game publishers, Nintendo and Nintendo Power, Atari Atari Age. Um, When we talk about journalism, it's worth mentioning that journalism and marketing are very different. Marketing is trying to generate purchasing intent. Journalism is just the study of information, Mm. pure and simple, and the flow of information. Marketing is actually creating information. So that's why those two things are very different. And when we look at Atari Age and Nintendo Power, there's really no journalism going on here. Um, There's not information being distributed, just created. Um, There's no freedom of the press. There's no analysis. There's no critique. Um, Golly. Do you remember when Nintendo Power had like comic books in the back of it? Yes. I I think you're not going to find someone who's going to defend the Metroid comic as pure hardcore games journalism. Like just get real. Not going to happen. But around 1990, we started to see stuff like the magazines. And this is like where EGM came out. um, Electronic Gaming Monthly, for those of you who don't know, Edge Magazine was huge in this phase um, around the year 2000, 2001, 2002. Games for Windows Magazine, loved it. Computer mm-hmm. Gaming World, mm-hmm. I remember that one way back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these were giant, you know, big glossy magazines that you would go pick up at like CompUSA or sometimes in the grocery store. And they lived where other publications of journalism lived. They lived next to People Magazine. They lived next to um, like... popular science magazine, which is still a thing. Uh, And they were owned by big magazine publishing houses like Ziff Davis, uh, Future US UK, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they really were still a marketing vehicle because they sold ads in those pages. But around the ads, you had content. Mm. That content was critique. It was analysis. Sometimes you would still see some financial reporting, like when one company had acquired another one. You you started to see those types of business stories uh, being reported. But they were still very dependent on game publishers to get a hold of hardware, to get a hold of the games. So less than a third, I would say, of these magazines was really devoted to news. It was more about the holy trinity of, like, you know, 20, 30 percent news, and the rest is all going to be previews with, like, one or two reviews at the back. Mm-hmm. Um And as there were more games coming out in the late 90s and the early 2000s, you started to see review sections start to look like the classified section in the paper. It was like a little, like, 200-word blurb on a game and a number, like an arbitrary number. It's like, based on what information, I have no idea. It's fun, 78. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Could be worse. What does the six even mean? God. Anyway, um, then the Internet happened. And the Internet really did happen in 2000. But honest, I think most people weren't relying on things. So you mentioned before that you live and die by Metacritic scores at some studios. That was not a thing until 2005, 2006. Okay. So that's when you started to see independently owned sites come up. Um, best example I could think of is Destructoid. Uh, you had Kotaku and Joystick, but they were owned by slightly larger conglomerates. There's GameSpot, of course, and then there's you know there's Game Informer, but they're owned by uh, GameStop, GameSpot. Taylor. GameStop, so they're technically yeah. they're kind of an interesting beast. But what you notice here is that there was less emphasis on reviews, even more, and it was a lot more like feature opinion critique, kind of in that bucket. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about journalism and the study of information, you can really break it into three buckets. You've got your your news. And the whole thing about news, if you want to know if it's news or not, is it's pragmatic. Mm-hmm. The purpose of news is to help you live your life. Mm-hmm. So you read the paper to figure out if it's going to rain tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You read the paper to figure out who to vote for. You read game news to figure out 
who to buy or what maybe you shouldn't buy um, or who's doing what or what to get excited about. Then you have things that are criticism and criticism is also designed for purchasing intent, but it's grounded in the self. It's always understood that this is this one person's opinion and it will help you make your purchasing decision, but it's grounded in opinion, not fact, Mm -hmm. unlike news. And then lastly, and this is where the internet comes in, you have features. And really the thing that makes a feature a feature is that it's abstract. At some level, it's just inviting you as a reader to think, not to have an opinion, not to go out and buy a game or don't buy a game. It's literally just an invitation to thought. And you can accomplish that in a bunch of different ways. But that's, by and large, what the internet was doing uh, from 2000 to about, I mean, we're still doing it now, I guess. But ever since, you know, Joystick got shut down, it's been it's been a different world. So more recently, and I'd say this really got going uh, in 2000. 13, 14, I think is when it was like a thing. This is where we saw the rise of Twitch and the YouTube Let's Plays. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I have a hard time bucketing it because it very much is journalism. That I will agree. But where does it fit? Because some of it is marketing based. It is paid content that Mm -hmm. people are generating to drive up a review score. But some of it's criticisms. Like it is them telling you what they think of a game and whether or not you should buy it. And then some of it is also still feature because it's like, Twitch plays Pokemon, like that is the act of viewing becomes the game itself. It's so meta. It's amazing. (laughs) So if I were to go back and get a PhD in journalism, that is what I would do my thesis on. I already have a master's. That was boring. That was on ethics and games journalism. I'm going back down that road. I'll tell you what. (laughs) And so that is the history of games journalism kind of in a really quick nutshell. I just took like a 45 minute talk and did it in like 10. I'm sorry for no, I'm impressed. And our awesome. audience is like, not only are they informed, but there's still 45 minutes of a uh, podcast left to, to listen to. So double whammy for us. It's a win win in my book. Oh, yay. So yeah, it's in online. Everyone's a journalist or rather everyone's a critic. So that's, that's the world we live in. Even you guys, I mean, like you're practicing journalism right now, but you wouldn't call yourself that, would you? No, I, I wouldn't say that I was a journalist at this point in time. I would say that we're trying to do something along the lines of being in, you know, games media uh, or information media, but I didn't even think to call myself a journalist. So here's a good question for you. Okay. How can you even know that you're talking to a journalist? Like how, in your mind, what is your mental model? All right. I'm, I'm very ignorant and I'm just going to go ahead and say it. But if you have ever written a published piece of writing specifically and exclusively about video games or the game industry and then got paid for it, I would consider you a professional games journalist by a reputable site. Right? Or by, <laughs> reputable. Man, you keep adding caveats. That, that, that's, that's the last one. That's the last one. If you made your own site and was like, like technically you're a journalist, right? If like, Hey, I started Larry's game reviews.com and here's my review, right? Like technically I'll, I'll say that you're a, you're a journalist that counts, but yeah. I would consider you a professional games journalist because you actually, that was your career right? and that's how you earn income. Yeah. It's the same for game developers, too. Like, I, I wouldn't call a kid in his basement making games until he actually gets paid. Professional video game development. Professional video game development, yeah. Well, I mean, it's true in most software industries. You're judged by what you ship, not by what you talked about shipping. So, yeah. Oh, snaps. <laughs> Burn. Burn. <laughs> <laughs> I call them to do a lot. So, like, you get into this, like, golden age of journalism where, like, you can't actually do your day grind anymore, so they pay you to do other shit. So one of the things I get paid to do is look at studio student, por- student portfolios and give them a critique. Okay. Mm. Uh, 
And because I'm pretty plain spoken and I'm also the media and goddamn terrifying, like people apparently value my opinion when I'm basically telling them the same thing their freaking professor told them, but somehow they listen to me, but not the professor. Yeah, that's, that's funny how that works. Yeah, it's really funny how that works. Um, and I don't know, do you guys watch uh, Penny Arcade? Do you like Penny Arcade at all? I've seen a couple. Yeah. Okay, so PATV? Oh, that's definitely not me. I've no, I haven't seen the TV. more okay, than so anything no. else. Yeah, they had this. They had this show they did for a while called Strip Search. It was supposed to be like America's Next Top Model, but they're looking for the next comic book artist who's going to be a big mm-hmm. deal. Mm-hmm. They had me come on as one of the challenges where they had to do a media interview with me. They had these twenty. I'm going to call them kids. That's insulting. They were not children, but they were definitely terrified as if they were children on the first day of school. And I had five minutes with each of them. And, you know, you start out with the softball questions, but my job was to sit there and eat them alive. So, yeah. And it's not good. Like and people were pissed with me in the comments. They're like, this is bad journalism. Of course you work for Kotaku. You're horrible. And it's like, you guys <laughs> relax. It's a TV show. It's supposed to be funny. And they didn't show Dramatic, you the first yeah. questions that I asked to soften them up. They only showed you the the last two where I destroyed them and like yeah. that was the point <laughs> I love where I destroyed them well you I know, need to go see this I'm gonna look it up yeah so I and I train other reporters like when I talk to other um people I've either mentored to people that I've like have worked for me and I go through a training with them about this is how you journalize mm-hmm. this is how you journalize go mm-hmm. go do that go make up words um but a big one is interviews. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, I think that interviewing is something that people don't know how to do as well now mm-hmm. as they did back when there wasn't the Internet. And you did have to pick up a phone and cold call people. And, oh, my God, what if they don't like you? What if they hang up on you? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, messaging people or emailing them and they ignore you, it's not a big deal. Uh, or tweeting, tweeting at people like that's super drive by and really easy to get away with. But. It's hard to sit with someone who made something that they poured all these hours into that they care about very deeply and they really want you to like it. I have never sat with someone who didn't want me to like their game, but at the same time, your job is not to make them happy. Your job is to get the story. So there's sometimes a moment where you make them very sad and there's always like a pattern of things that is going to make them very sad and you learn to look for it as a journalist and you learn how to get through that conversation it's awkward it's uncomfortable but you have to do it because it's your job Mm. and i think that that's probably one of the traits that kind of got me as far as i got was that i was really good at interviewing there's always going to be someone who's better than you at writing. There's always going to be someone who's like just freaking dynamite at transcription or someone who's so good at headlines. Mm-hmm. They suck at headlines. <laughs> um, but my, my skill was always in interviewing. Oh, wonderful. I mean, clearly we've seen examples of that skill on this podcast. We should, uh, if you ever want to come back and like co-host with us, like we might or start or a special thing. Larry and I would gladly just sit back and watch. <laughs> Welcome to the Game Dev Unchained podcast, not featuring Brandon or Larry. This is awesome. But oh. I have no, no. I don't mean that as a, like a like an insult or anything. I'm actually just trying to be funny. I'm just not a comedian. I let me ask you this on behalf of game developers. You mentioned earlier, and we might not have had this part recorded, but you said that it, it, sure sometimes it's okay to just shotgun and you know just try everyone because you know like you said the writer may be behind or lost a lead and you just might fit the bill. So in your experience, was there ever like a really good headline that caught you in the subject line from one of the game devs who was just going for broke and like trying to swing a home run that other game developers can kind of, you know, emulate? There are a few press releases I've read that are just so outlandish that they have to get your attention. I can't think of any off the top of my head that I could share, but I will tell you the name of someone. And if you go look at her Twitter, that will give you an idea of what to say. Her name is Aubrey Norris, and she is a legend 
when it comes to writing press releases. Every games journalist knew Aubrey's name because her press releases were so goddamn outrageous. And she was repping, I think, for Deep Silver in the years that I worked at Kotaku. And Deep Silver, God love him, at that time did not have a hit. A lot of their games were not very good. And you knew that. But at the same time, you gave Aubrey the time of day because she was swinging for the fences because it made you laugh. It got your attention. And, you know, she was really trying to get you in the room. And sometimes you just really want to validate someone because maybe they don't have a story today, but Aubrey would bring you a story later. And then what did they do? They went on to do like Dead Island or something amazing. Mm -hmm. So it paid off in the long run, building that relationship. And that's what a good publicist does. And if you can ever find someone who works games, PR and get them on your podcast, they're the ones who are actually going to tell you like how to write press releases and do the blind fire reporters. Half the time, they don't even know what they're looking for until it falls in their lap. So it's hard to kind of tell you as a reporter what you should do. Mm. Aubrey Norris will fucking rock you. Just blow your mind with what you should do. Okay. Uh, So everyone in the audience, if you're getting ready to write a press release, at least do yourself a favor and go check out some written by Aubrey Norris. Chupacabre on Twitter, man. Chupacabre on Twitter. Yeah, I already pulled it up. I'm reading an article about her on Kotaka right now. No, she's great. Is there a good percentage of that just falling in your lap or is it like mostly a sign? Like how, how much of that? It depends on the publication. So I can walk you through a couple of my experiences. When I was at Inside Network and I was a managing editor, my job was to do a lot of what you described about content sourcing. It was basically like pointing my reporters in a direction and just saying, okay, go get it. Like we heard that this might be happening. We have heard that this thing might be happening or this earnings call is coming up. You'd be surprised how many headlines you can get from an earnings call. Go mm-hmm. do it. Um, but when it comes to, I was trying to say, assigning and things like that, it really depends on the publication. So at Future, it was very traditional. You had a Monday morning pitch meeting where everybody said, here's what I want to do. And then at the end of the meeting, the editor go like, you're doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this. You, you need to work on your pitching. You're terrible. Like that. Um, they're very fast meetings, usually 15 minutes long. Um, and then you have... Then you have something that's a little less structured um, in some ways. So like Kotaku was a great example. Uh, Kotaku was very straightforward with me. They said, we need blank number of stories from you a day. They're going to run at this specific time of day. You need to file them by this time. I don't care what you do it on. Mm. Don't, don't copy someone else's story. That was, those were the guidelines. It was like, okay, should it be a preview? Should it be like a picture of a shirt or a cat or a cat wearing a shirt? And you know, part of that is just a byproduct of when I came to Kotaku in 2009. I mean, this was at the end of the economic recession. Um, and I know Gawker was undergoing some pretty major changes right then. I think it was just before they kind of got their big break with the iPhone story where the iPhone got left in a, in a bar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody remembers that. Yeah. But before iPhone story, Gawker had to fight really hard to, like, get noticed. Mm-hmm. So writing for Kotaku, it was not always clear to me, like, what my story was going to be, but I had a quota to fill. Mm-hmm. And during certain times of year, it was easier because there were all these press showcases that I could get invited to. So I could go to an EA press showcase. They do a really great spring showcase every year. They show everything that they're going to be working on, either as a trailer or as a quick five-minute blurb from the producer, and every single one of them is a story. And then they turn you loose in, like, their freaking hangar that they have on their campus that's just full of games. And you stay there until you've played every single one, and every single one's a story. And if you're lucky and you get an interview with the producer on top of playing the game, that's two stories. Mm-hmm. And that fill up my quota for, like, a month. So that was a different structure. 
And then you had GamePro. When I was at GamePro, I was very specifically the news editor. My job was just the news. So I'm out there running down every lead that I can. I'm stalking people on Twitter. Back in those days, there was this great thing called Google Reader. I'm really sad that they killed it, but that was how I pulled in all the RSS feeds. And I could just scroll through everything that happened while I was asleep, look for anything that might be interesting, make some phone calls to people that were either part of the story or tangentially related to the story, and try to build something. And I had a quota there, too. It was 10 a day. Wow. So, yeah, you have to have hustle when, when you're in news reporting. You really can't spend a whole lot of time agonizing about the perfect cat picture to go with your blog. Um, different world. So it really does depend on the publication as to what kind of structure they tackle it with. So when it comes to that blind fire thing, one of the first things they would do at every publication I ever work was find out what our tip line was. Everybody has a tip line. It's an alias that you can email, like tips at Jezebel or tips at whatever. Um, get access to that email alias and make it your job to pull through that every day. When you think you have something, your next step is to Google it to see if you already wrote about it. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times that happened at Kotaku where someone would write someone else's story that got published like 12 hours before. Oh, wow. Like, oh man, I missed it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> like pushing like five stories an hour. They couldn't keep track of everything. Um, and so you'd run into those situations a lot. So check the tip line and that's where the blind fires are going to emerge is usually in the tip line. So I'm going to give you a trenches story from my time in journalism, because something I don't think people realize, especially if they're new to this space, is that relationships matter. It's never just the one preview or just the one news story. It's always like a long-term relationship you end up building with your streamer or you end up building with your publicist or, you know, what have you. So here's how I ended up kind of building a relationship at Kotaku when I was still the new kid. I was the only woman on staff because Maggie Green had departed, and I think Lee Alexander was not a full-time contributor back then. I was the only full-time female. And... They wanted me to do every Wii game that came across their desk. They wanted me to review all these Wii games. And I'm sorry if maybe I read a little bit too deeply into that, thinking it was a gender thing, but I noticed that before I came to Kotaku, there were no Wii reviews. Mm -hmm. After I came to Kotaku, all of a sudden, there were a ton of them, and I wrote them all. Mm. It was really frustrating. So <laughs> for me, like the final insult was when they gave me Call of Duty Modern Warfare for the Wii with the Wii Zapper. So... I wasn't reviewing Call of Duty. God, no, you can't let a woman review Call of Duty. Oh, my God. You have to review the fucking Zapper. And this is like a C-string, like, Nintendo plug-in thing. Like, this isn't even their best work. Mm -hmm. So that thing was a nightmare. That game with that thing was twice a nightmare. It was bad. And I had to sit here and beat it because Kotaku had a very stringent policy that you must beat the game's that you review. I respect that policy because it does force you to put in the hours, mm -hmm. but boy, does it also make you hate a game that maybe doesn't deserve quite so much. Cause by all accounts, you know, it's modern warfare. How bad could it be? Yeah. Um, I hated that thing so much that the next day <laughs> after I turned it in and they gave me my next assignment for reviews team, my next assignment was goddamn Harry Potter five for the Wii. We had never reviewed the first four. Why are we reviewing any Harry Potter game? Honestly, you get like one woman in the room and I'm supposed to represent all of female kind? What the fuck? I hate when that happens. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. And so they had me playing this game and it was so bad. I actually like raged through a controller at one point, called my then editor and just said, I'm not doing it and you can fucking fire me. And just yeah. have no women work for you. And he's like, please, please, I need this. I promised the publisher we would do it. I know it's bad. I'll tell you what. I'll give you any game review in the fall lineup that you ask for. Anything. And 
this there was a tactical error on his part because he thought I was going to ask for The Sims 3. Mm-hmm. I asked for Batman Arkham Asylum. Ooh, oh, nice. nice. That's a good and one. And he got suckered hard because nobody wanted to do The Sims review either, so I got them both. Mm, and they nice. were like pop trafficking stores. It was great. It was awesome. Um, but he remembered that, and I remembered it too. And so every time anything we came up after that, it wasn't going to be me because he knew I would exact sweet revenge somehow. Like, <laughs> No. And I think that the biggest victory for me in that no was probably, uh, what was it? Is uh, Tales, Tales of Symphonia, Dawn of the New World. It was okay. like the really bad sequel to Tales of Symphonia that was also for the Wii, and it was really terrible. And I got out of that. I didn't have to do it because he did not want to tangle with me again over the yes. subject. Well, um, you're kind of going into that issue. And like Larry and I have talked about women in game development. Uh, we're kind of wondering what the gender did that follow you along with your career or was it just a bad experience over at Kataki? Um, so your gender, like whatever you identify with and you're both people of color. So this must follow you around too. And sometimes you're invisible. Well, more and more Larry. <laughs> <laughs> the Asians are doing okay in game development. <laughs> so the thing is it's AJ Glasser and most people are not savvy enough to Google me before they talk to me. So you'd be surprised mm, even What's now, up, dude. Hey, I, I, yeah, oh, no, hey. people just, can't, <laughs> just don't know. Like they literally don't know. Actually, in my most recent job, this is hilarious. I was interacting with a person named Christy for six months and we met in person and he's a dude oh. <laughs> and I'm a woman. And we both thought the other one was the other gender. Nice. It was, oh, it was great fun. We actually wore each other's names tags to GDC. It was really cute. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, but yeah, it follows you in ways and it's hard because when it comes to issues of, you know, institutional racism or even just like bias, plain old bias, it's really hard to call it out because it's hard to prove it. Mm. Yeah. Um, in some blatant cases where I felt like it was becoming a problem, I was pretty, you know, loud about it. I mean, I don't, I'm not really the type to lie down. (laughs) Plus I happened to work for people who were not oblivious to it. Like they knew it was a problem. And so they were at least open to hearing me out. I think the worst though, was I worked for this editor and I don't want to say his name because he really is a good editor. Like for values of editor, he was so good at it, but he did not seem to hear me when I talked, I would pitch an idea and he would just be like, "Mm, move on. And then if someone else pitched that exact same idea, Oh my God, that's the best ever. (laughs) That's like a Larry story. Within three seconds. And, yeah. you know, they actually, I think I saw like a news article that came out about this recently about how like people are supposed to affirm what your female colleagues say because mm-hmm. some men just don't hear them. It's yeah. really obnoxious. But I actually ended up working out a deal with another reporter on staff because he was bad at transcription. So I said before, relationships matter. He would pitch my ideas for me. Mm-hmm. The editor would love them. And then he would give the story back to me. He would say, oh, you know, I actually can't do that story. I think AJ's going to do it. AJ's got it. Oh, man. Nice. And yeah. he would give them back to me. And in exchange, I did all of his transcription for him because he had a really hard time typing. So, but what worries me about a story like that, right? And I'm just going to call a spade a spade. You had to make a deal with a friend where yeah. you would do work for him so that so he that, could pitch yeah. an idea so, so that you could do work for yourself. Yeah. Yep. Welcome Jesus to, Christ. Welcome to how unfair life is. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where how would you fix it? Like in an ideal world, you know, you could, I don't know, cry to HR and they mm-hmm. would come down from on high and strike him down. Or I could pull the editor aside and say, you've been doing this. And he would say, oh, my God, you're right. I'll change. But I think there's some book or blog I read somewhere that talked about behavior modification and how it takes like 18 months 
mm-hmm. for someone to actually change. So someone might call you out or pull you aside and tell you like, hey, I don't really like that you're doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And you might consciously recognize, oh man, that's a shitty thing to do. I should stop. But it will take you more than a year to actually stop. And you have mm-hmm. to be working on it. Mm-hmm. How do we do that? It's hard. It takes time. And I don't really know what became of that editor. I left that publication. But, you know, I found that I had other way it got like less hard as it went on as opposed to more hard so i can only hope that it gets better and better but then you know what we're in a different realm now with twitch and streaming and sexuality plays a very different role when it's visual you know if i'm pitching an editor over aim or over email he doesn't remember that i'm a woman sometimes and maybe i get my pitches accepted more Uh but i'm streaming a game and maybe they don't care about the game they just care about what i'm wearing Uh... how no it's so hard to know right so yeah. you can I'm getting depressed. <laughs> no, it, it's yeah, it's true though. It's it's true stuff. I, I have young women who come to me all the time and ask for mentorship on this and I feel bad mentoring them because I'm the kind of gal that brings a gun to a knife fight like Oh, yeah. hell yeah. That's not a good tactic. Yeah. But um it's my tactic and what I tell them instead is that look, you can find any number of reasons to be angry. There's a lot to be angry about. You can also choose what to get angry about sometimes. Pick which hills you want to die on and make sure that you die on only those hills and not other ones. That way, at least other people know you and they know what you value. Mm. And they have to work with that. They have to work around it. Um, People knew, for example, like I made it a point that accuracy was really important to me. Like I've fucked up. Everybody's kind of fucked up, like spelling someone's name right. Or maybe you messed the date up or something like that. But for me, if your mother says she loves you, check it. Check it twice. That's Mm -hmm. what accuracy is. Run it down all the way. And if you're not sure, check it again. Mm -hmm. And that was a hill I would die on. If someone gave me something where they hadn't checked or they hadn't called the source to confirm, I would I would totally throw on that hill and fucking die. Another one I will die on. I don't take notes in meetings. Bitches, do I look like a secretary? (laughs) I I don't do that. I also don't get coffee. I used to troll this one guy at a different magazine I worked at because, you know, I'd come, everybody would like stand around his desk because he was like the freaking king holding court or whatever because he was really popular and I'd just stand there and I'm the only girl. And one time he asked me to get him coffee. One time. It only happened one time because I just ripped him a new one standing there like, are you fucking serious, boy? What did you just say? I'm going to get you coffee because what? I don't even know where the coffee machine is. And just kind of like drilling it. So he's like, God, I'm sorry. Okay, whatever. And after that, like... (laughs) People are like, man, she's such a bitch. So I just started to play with it where we would be standing in a group. and be like, oh, hey, Andy, do you want some coffee? And be like, yeah. I'm like, it's over there. I'm like, point. And I got him with that every damn day for like six months. That's and, then he, yeah. and then he went somewhere else. So those are, those are the hills worth dying on. Jeez, but yeah. I've ne- like I've never in any sort of employment situation like looked up the chain or down the chain and been like, hey, can you, you give me, me some coffee? <laughs> Like, like, maybe if you were right next to it, right? And I was like, oh, hey, would you mind passing me something? Because, like, you're right there. But, like, not, like, go inconvenience yourself to convenience me. That's, that's, that's like, that's some bullshit right there. Uh, it happens in every office culture. It has nothing to do with journalism. It's just how people, they that's just sometimes yeah. My um, man said, uh, excuse me, miss, can you give me some coffee, please? Let's oh, man. Or like when you're walking down the street and you're getting catcalled and like your male coworkers with you have no idea what to do. I actually had one guy run away. It was really he t- ran away. <laughs> <laughs> 
we're walking back from a GDC party and this guy starts catcalling me and I ignore him because fuck, I'm going to ignore him. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to follow us like, hey, baby, girl, mm-hmm. I'm talking to you. Girl, what? You're too good for me? And my friend literally starts walking a little faster and then he just takes off sprinting. <laughs> a friend? Hey, you know what, AJ? I didn't know you at that time. You have to forgive my behavior. You know, I just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean you're well, expert? You know what the biggest showstopper is in game in like games industry parties, and I'm talking to people. And they're like, "Oh, hey," you know, they're flirting with me, and I'm like, "Oh, I'm a reporter." Clears the room. They're gone. Wow. Really? <laughs> really? No, I don't want to talk to a girl reporter. That's gonna be horrible. For what? I, mean, <laughs> what? I don't understand. What, I don't what? get it. Like, yeah, what? What, what are we missing here? <laughs> if you're hitting on me and I'm writing about your game, and I decide I don't like you, not mm-hmm. only am I gonna rip your game a new one, I could potentially emasculate you just right there. And then write about it. Like, like that's a story. Being hit on at a GDC party is an entire article I could write. That is not an article you ever want written about you. Mm. And I actually remember reading an article like that on Kotaku. I didn't write it. Another woman journalist that I knew did. And it sucked because I knew what she was trying to talk about. Mm. But I also understood the other side of it. She mentioned in her story that she was at an E3 press briefing. And she was supposed to jump in and play this PC game. Mm. And the guy giving the demo, uh, I don't know if he was in marketing or PR, probably PR, was like, Oh, here, let me play it for you. And she turned it into this big story about how men don't think women can game and that this guy wasn't taking her seriously as a reporter. Mm. However, I happen to know that the game that she was looking at was an MMO. I happen to know that it's a very complicated MMO. Mm. And I'm 90% sure that that PR rep probably really thought no one knew how to play the damn game because Mm. probably nobody did. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can see it both ways. And I've definitely had situations where guys kind of give me that skeptical look like, can she really do this? Mm. Um, I've been at press events before where I'm waiting my turn in line to play something and have a guy like try to move me out of line because he thinks I'm a publicist and I'm just taking up space. Mm. Like, uh, no, I write for Kotaku. My blog is bigger than yours. Well, um, like I said, guns to knife fights, not the best tactic. I wasn't moving you out of the line. I was moving you out of the line to move you to the front. (laughs) You just needed to give me a second. I just, (laughs) I mean, it Where's can my be coffee? Yeah, everybody has Where's my coffee? <laughs> I knew one woman reporter, her tactic was to actually get dressed up. Like, she had heels, she had the nice, fluffy A-line skirts and the really good makeup and perfume, like, really expensive shit from MAC, like, that I can't afford. Mm-hmm. And she would just make it a thing, where she walks in there looking like a model, sits down and pulls off, like, I don't know, an eight-streak headshot kill and just mm-hmm. something phenomenal, just rubbing it in your face, her femininity, combined with her gaming skills because that was what worked for her and sure enough as a competing reporter with her she could get stories i couldn't get Mm. because of the way that she presented herself and like how aggressive she was about it and it worked for her um i knew another woman reporter where she is super matronly and she is some she actually is someone's mom and she dresses that way because she doesn't want to be treated a certain way she doesn't want you to talk to her like you know, she's your bro. Mm. She kind of plays the mother angle and she gets really good interviews. I've listened to some of her interviews. Like she's mom and people just want to cry on her shoulder about how no one likes their game. And this is how she gets all these fucking killer interviews. But you don't um, understand. Fez is a work of art. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So, you know, and I look at it now, especially when I see like people being eviscerated on Twitter and all the death threats and stuff and just how crazy people get. And it's yeah. just games, y'all calm down. But when it comes to the relationship between a developer and a reporter, and I do keep saying relationship because, you know, it's not a one off. It's not like Twitter. This is someone if they're a real games reporter, you're going to see them over and over again. And they're going to see you if you are very serious about staying in games. Mm-hmm. 
So you kind of start to learn about them and you can't just dismiss them based on their appearances. You know, she wears lipstick. She must not know how to play games or, you know, he's a black man. His entire thing is writing about diversity in games. You cannot do that because they're going to come back and be there and you have to deal with these bad assumptions that you made. So I don't know. I think that as I get older, especially I kind of look for ways to help people have conversations like that about, Hey man, we got off on the wrong foot or, Hey, there's this bias. It's in the way of us doing our job. Mm -hmm. Like now what, how do we get past this? I don't want to cuss you out on Twitter and threaten to kill you. That's stupid. What happens after this bad interaction? How can we fix it? Mm. That's the kind of thing I kind of look for now and how I can do that. Well, has anybody saved their relationship with you? Like, sure, they get off on the wrong foot, and then you hit them with oh, that first. Has anyone actually, like, I you know what? Before I managed to get off a blacklist. Oh, um, okay. It's, it's tough stuff, but sometimes if you're around long enough and you know you're going to see this person, someone either – a really great strategy is to find a go-between mm. because the games industry is still small enough where someone that you know knows someone, okay. and they can pull you together and say, look, I don't know what happened, y'all, but you're a good guy. You're a good guy. Like, can we, can we get past this and i've done that for other people as well so i had one relationship get saved because a friend went as a go-between and just said look i know i'm bad um i had another one that just we openly decided to bury the hatchet where it's like hey i remember you you were horrible and i'm like i remember you too i didn't like you neither do you want to get a drink and just sitting down and just saying look this is my background this is what i'm about and i understand that that puts you in a bad position but i had to make a choice and i made it Okay, yeah, one another round. And that relationship actually turned out to be really fruitful down the line because that publicist like left the place that blacklisted me. He went somewhere else and he was able to get me an exclusive because he knew that it would appeal to me because he knew who I was now. And also he knew I would do it right because that was what made him hate me in the first place. But wow. you, can, you can save it. You just have to be willing to talk to people and you have to be willing to own your own mistakes. And some people are not very good at that. Me especially. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, talking, uh, talking to these developers, and you're you're coming from the journalist world, right? If you were AJ Glasser, the developer, how would you approach yourself in nowadays with the internet and everything? That is not a question I know how to answer because I will never be able to think of myself as a developer. Honestly, I know some reporters who love to do that. They like to you know pretend to be the thing that they're writing about. Mm-hmm. I will never do that. I don't have like a list of like games ideas in my drawer that I just want to make my own game someday. I don't aspire to be a game developer. Not that what you all do isn't cool. I have tremendous respect for it, but no, it's not what I want. What I want to do is play all the games and in order yes. to happen, y'all have to make them. And in order for y'all to make them, you have to make money. I am part of this process. That's <laughs> that's, I know where I fit in this ecosystem. And I think that that's another thing that helps me do my job, but that might be the thing that makes it easy for me is that I know where I fit. Your job is to make the game, mm-hmm. and you will spend much more of your life making something that it only takes me an hour to decide what to say about it. And wow. I'm very aware of how unfair that is and how dangerous that can really be for – especially like you're an indie and you poured everything you had into this, and a reporter hates it. I mean – and people are like, oh, you can't take it personally. But why wouldn't you take it personally? It is personal. So it's rough out there, and I get that. So as a reporter, try not to be mean. And try to make it about the game and not about the person. Unless you're doing a, you know, people interest story. In that case, it is about the person. But know where the lines are. And I think that's something that people are still trying to figure out, especially in the streaming era. Where are the lines? Yeah. So 
I'm going to use that as a segue to ask a couple of questions that at one time in my life, I really wanted to know the answer to. And I'm not saying that I'm about to ask you a question that I care to like zero shits about. What I mean is there was definitely a time in my life where I knew a lot of people wanted to know this type of thing. So I once worked on this game. It was a very big game and it had many sequels and there's probably many more sequels on the way. And we're on a team, 300 plus people. And we're like working very hard on this product but before we could even say or show anything about the game, the predisposition in the community and also in a lot of journalists was, oh, my God, another Call of Duty. Yay. Right. <laughs> so, of course, you have a franchise which has like beaten the dead horse as many times as it can. And somehow blood and water still comes out. Right. So, like, they're still making money out of this cash cow. And I felt like a lot of people were like kind of angry at Call of Duty for simply existing. Right. Like it didn't matter how much love and care that the development team would have put into the project because we felt like, you know, people already had a predisposition to want to hate on our game. Full disclosure, okay. I once interviewed for a job with Activision that would have been Call of Duty community manager. And okay. I turned it down because of what the community is like. Mm. It's especially challenging for women. That's not to say that there are not some outstanding examples of good digital citizenship among the Call of Duty community. Mm. It's just to say that those aren't the guys that are giving you death threats at four o'clock in the morning because they forget out your phone number and they're yeah. going to be calling you. Oh, um God. When it comes to, so the, what is your actual question? Like so, how to change sure, stuff? Sure. Yeah. So I kind of stopped. The question for me is how do you feel like as a professional games journalist about having predisposed bias towards a game or franchise because of, you know, lackluster expectations with what you think they should be doing versus what they actually did. Like for example, Oh, call of duty, infinite warfare. I don't like it. So I'm going to give it a 40. Uh, um, Hillary Duff dancing in the rain. I'm going to give this game a 60. And it's like, are you kidding me, man? You like anyway. transparency is really the only thing that works when it comes to reviews. Like you have to tell people how you review things. I mentioned mm -hmm. before Kotaku had a rule that you had to beat the game mm -hmm. um, because that proves to the audience that you spent X number of hours on Steam. They've started showing you, I think, the games that you've played and the number of hours you've played a game when you review it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's a smart tactic because you want to know how much you can trust someone's word. Like, how much mm -hmm. did they do here? Good point. But something else that we used to fight about in every publication of our work, we've had this fight. Who gets to write the review? The guy that played the first 40 of those games or mm -hmm. a noob who's never played any of them? Mm -hmm. And if you're getting the noob who's never played any of them, does he or she get to say that? Do they say that? Is that like a thing that they have to disclose? Mm -hmm. And I've gone both ways with it. I remember getting like my throat cut in a Gears of War 2 review because I didn't play the first one. I didn't review the first one. That was kind of the point is they wanted to try having someone who didn't know Gears of War play yeah. it. I adored it. But then they told me that I wasn't allowed to disclose I hadn't played the first one. In fact, they told me to pretend that I had. Mm -hmm. Do you know how stupid that is? I will never do that again. I made mm -hmm. such a fucking stupid mistake by, like, assuming that a storyline that was present in two was present in one when it wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And I ended up having to delete that entire paragraph after publication. It was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. um, but the publication, like, my then bosses insisted that I could not tell people that I had never played this game before. That's, um, that's I've seen it. It's tough because you're not sure how to connect with your readers. Because remember, yeah. in journalism, you you live and die by readership, not by Metacritic score. Mm -hmm. So is my reader more sympathetic to me for never having played it? Or is that an invitation for them to treat me like shit in the comments? It's, you know, they got to walk a fine line there. And I totally understand it. Um, I was always a fan of spot checking. So you would have someone who was an expert in that game genre mm -hmm. play the whole damn thing. And then I would force that person when I was an editor to sit with someone who had never played it show the person their favorite part. 
load up that part of the save and just talk them through it. And I actually wanted to make this a video series at one point. We didn't end up doing it because people were embarrassed to look stupid. But basically, if you, <laughs> you would try to explain or justify the game to the person who didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And it would kind of force them to think about it separately as if they were talking to someone who's never played before. And sometimes the person who'd never played before would like ask interesting questions or like exclaim that something was cool or neat, or it would force the reviewer to kind of really think about this outside of their own head. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the most fair thing that we could do. I remember, I think it was EGN that used to do the triple review, where three different people would write a review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know how long that takes? It's a pain in the ass. Like, it's bad enough when I have one writer on deadline. God knows if he's going to make it. Now I need three for one game. It's a nightmare. Anyway, it's hard to achieve some sort of objective standard for who has the right to an opinion on a game. You know, if they even just picked up the box art and decided not to buy it, that's an opinion. Is it valid? And if so, to whom? Like, it's really hard to answer those questions. I think that's why a lot of people do prefer Let's Plays, especially the kind where you just mute the sound and literally just watch the game unfold. I've seen so many Let's Plays of The Sims where I cannot stand their voices. It drives mm-hmm. me insane. But I want to know, like, is, yeah. this some, is this content I need to invest in? Is this something I should buy? Because mm-hmm. Sims expansion packs are about as nightmarish as Call of Duty sequels. Like, how do you even review this? Do you review it by itself with no other EPs installed? Mm-hmm. Do I need the base game? Oh, my God, what the fuck do I do? <laughs> so... My policy is always like, yeah, get the expert on that game to play it, but then force them to defend it to someone who's never played it. Okay. That's that's a very interesting policy, though. Like, I haven't even thought about or seen something like that in action. So I really do wish that that video series was out there so that I could check it out. Oh, man, you should have seen the Metroid thing. That got hella awkward. Um, I was with a reviewer who was reviewing Metroid Prime. It was the one from Team Ninja. Mm. And he's, like, playing through a level, and I keep interrupting with all these obnoxious feminist questions. <laughs> like... Wait, she has to ask her boss's permission to use her power? Why the fuck does she keep talking about her baby? If she says baby one more time, I'm going to fucking knock you out of your chair. <laughs> At this uh, point, why, why are you so mad about the baby? Oh, my God. AJ, do you want a baby? And like, it made things hella awkward in the office. And he didn't end up writing about any of that. In his review, yeah. even though it was actually really interesting. And then I think it was Abby Hepe, who was at G4 at the time. She wrote this huge, or no, maybe it was a video. I can't remember if it was a video she wrote it, but she pointed out all the feminist shit that I had said mm-hmm. and created this really great conversation in games journalism that we could have done if that guy had just taken into account some of those obnoxious feminist questions I was asking. Mm. Ask permission to use your powers. My ass. <laughs> I'm so this is like I'm so excited by this podcast. It's like one of the most spirited podcasts we've had in the history of running the show. AJ Glasser, I got to give you a hand right now just for that. Just so you know, um, I want to I want to try to swing this back to maybe helping some people who are interested in journalism because I'm sure a lot of people may have clicked on this to be like, hey, actually, I really want to know about getting into games journalism. So. Say I'm a college student, I'm taking English, thinking that that's what's going to get me into journalism or writing my novel that I'm never going to write. Um, How would you say are avenues that exist now for someone who wants to get into game journalism that could lead them to working for a Kotaku or working for a Gamasutra? Well, I guess anyone could write for Gamasutra, but you know what I mean. Getting a spot as a resident writer for any one of these like known game publications that are big well those spots are hard to get so i would tell this person that they need to be a self-starter and try to figure out how to make money on their own um i would also tell this person to start doing twitch start doing youtube gaming Mm -hmm. for two reasons one it's because it's where a lot of the consumption of journalism is actually happening Mm -hmm. and then two it will actually 
teach you to form that connection to your readers early on to kind of figure out what, what they're responding to and what they don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the next step when it comes to the actual act of writing and reporting and interviewing, the best way to learn it is to do it. Uh, I would usually tell people, I, I gave writing tests whenever I was interviewing for new writers, I would have them do a series of tasks. One of them is to write a 150 word review of a game that was already out. And there are two things I'm checking for here is one, can you actually sum up what this game was in 150 words Two, did you keep to word count? Mm. If I tell you 150 words, I better fucking see 150 words. If I see 200, I'm not hiring you. Like Mm. I'm not doing Mm. that. Um, Another one is the newsworthy check. I would ask them to go find, you know, go look at the blog that you want to write for. And in the last week of like, say just randomly the week of October 8th, 2015, what stories were on the blog And what story like that they think were the highest trafficking and then also what stories were not on the blog but should have been. Mm -hmm. Mm. So just forcing them to think about what's newsworthy that fits with this publication. Do I know in this publication what resonates with those writers? Like you have to know who you're trying to write for Mm -hmm. and what they care about. So that kind of helps with that. Another one is to pose a a pro and con thing. So I used to do this um, for Apple iOS uh, and the Google Android ecosystems. I'd say, hey, this might be the year that Android revenues outtake iOS revenues. What do you think? And they'd have to argue pro or con for a position. They had to take a position. Mm-hmm. This tests, you know, their nature of editorial. Can they editorialize? Because you are, it's an opinion, not a yeah. fact. Yeah. Then how well you defend that. So those are some of the exercises I would put my writers through just to see if they could do it. And the thing is that not everyone is going to be a good writer you might actually be fucking terrible and you can still make it if you have other skills that are applicable, good interviewing skills, because in that case, all you have to do is just ask great questions and transcribe everything. And you don't have to write shit. (laughs) Your editor will take care of the headline. Some intern will do the opening blurb. It's fine. Um, Find the skills that matter though, and really work on those. I know one guy whose entire thing is he's so good at financial modeling. He was, he was an analyst Uh, for most of his young life, but he wanted to be a reporter. Mm -hmm. And all he did was cover earnings calls and he would blog about the earnings calls and do some financial projections based on earnings calls. And that's how he got a regular steady gig, just writing about game finances. Okay. Mm. So if you're something that you're passionate about or a skill that you already have that is applicable to journalism, just start doing it. Makes me Okay. Perfect. Well, do you need a degree or anything? Or God, no! Is... I only got this degree so my parents would get off my back. <laughs> no, really, you don't need a degree. Um, okay. Because the people who are hiring you, sometimes they will look for it. I did have one editor tell me that the reason he hired me is that he liked my degree. He did not like my clips very much. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, my very first job, I had nothing in my background to recommend me. All I had was a really goddamn funny cover letter, and then I passed the writing exercises. Mm, okay. So, you know, learn to write as well as you possibly can. Learn to look at what matters to the people who are writing the stuff that you want to be writing. And something else that never hurt anybody is just ask a journalist. Um, I remember I was actually dating a guy who wanted to be a games journalist very briefly. And we were standing in a movie theater and Jeff Gershwin walked by because it's San Francisco. I mean, you know. People live here and stuff. And he was so like, he freaked out. Like it was like a celebrity. Oh my God. And he wouldn't go talk to Jeff. And I didn't know this guy. And at the time I wasn't even sure I wanted to do games journalism. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But I just walked up to Jeff Gershwin and asked for his aim contact because my boyfriend wanted to be a games journalist. Mm -hmm. 
like the funny end of that story is that I ended up the games journalist and he didn't and I, but he did talk to Jeff (sighs) and Jeff was very open to like mentoring him. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like he stayed with him on aim, like all day, every day, 24 seven, but he was willing to talk to him for like 30 minutes of his time. Wow. Yeah. And that's a treasure. If you can get someone reach out to them and ask them, Hey, I know you must get a lot of requests for this. I just want 15 minutes. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I hop on Skype with you? A lot of people will say yes, but you have to be brave enough to ask. Boom. I got that. That's, that's my takeaway. When I go to the next GDC, I'll be like, Hey, Peter Molyneux. Hey, uh, budding game designer. <laughs> Peter here. loves to talk. He is so good at talking. Oh, Peter Molyneux loves to talk. There's Ours? some people I've gotten to meet. Like that's part of my favorite thing in the job is that I've gotten to meet some really extraordinary people and interview them and find out just how cool they really are. Mm-hmm. Like half the shit I can't even fucking write about. And it was always stuff. Cause I always ask a question at the end of every interview that makes you remember me because they meet with hundreds of reporters. Why should they bother to remember my name? And I would always say, like, what is one story that you absolutely cannot have me write about? Mm-hmm. And it was always some story about getting wicked drunk and wrapping a car around a tree when they're like 17. I shit you not. Um, another great question is, what is the dumbest thing you've done to impress a girl or a boy you wanted to date? That oh, is a man. good one. In fact, answer that for me. That's a good one. Uh, all right. I'll just go ahead and start. So <laughs> I was at Penn State, Altoona, and I stripped down completely naked. I ran from my front door down all the stairs of the apartment complex to her car and back because I lost a bet. Oh, it, yeah. did it work? Did she uh, notice you? Oh yeah. We, we dated for quite some time. Nice. <laughs> but I'll never do that again. That was, that was like that was 20 year week. old shit. I would never <laughs> do that again. <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid. Well, were there any stand? No, no, Brandon. No, 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 I don't, no, I no, son, no. I'll come back to it. No, no. Tell them about the dance move. That, that, that's a good one. You got to do something. Uh, I just told them I stripped fine. out naked. So this is what, when I was dating my wife, uh, and we were at a dance club. And uh, I, I walked away. I got a drink. And my friends were on the dance floor. And my, my wife was dancing with their friends. I came back. And this guy was, like, inching up closer to her and was proceeding to do his dance and my wife you know was there not like engaging but was there right and didn't walk away didn't want to be rude and so i look at my friends my friends looked at me so i immediately did like a little warm <laughs> it's like the corniest move and i like cut him off midway and it's one of those things you would see in movies that you would never see in real life but yeah, it's, it's so- like seagulls <laughs> like the seagull mating dance you can totally yeah. see that just with but- seagulls I kept my eye contact on him, and I did, like, the full-on face, hand-to-the-face thing. And it was so ridiculous that he just walked off because it wasn't worth it, right? <laughs> to me, I was a hero that day to my friends. Yeah, that's a good Silly story. enough that made my wife and laugh. Worked, you're married. That totally worked. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, that was the silliest thing. All right, so, AJ, look, we're all bonding here, and Brandon and I just threw out some gold, so you you got oh, to ante up. Yeah, dumbest thing I ever did? Yeah. I mean, God, there's a few things. I have a pattern of throwing myself into hobbies that I don't actually have. So I took capoeira class for a whole year, made oh, my wow. Um, I climbed Mount Fuji to get a guy's attention. It didn't work. I did Aikido for six months. I don't know shit about Aikido, but whatever. And it's funny because I joined Aikido to impress one guy, but met a different guy in the Aikido class. Mm -hmm. That was then my boyfriend. That was great. Um, Got into games journalism to show that guy that I was dating that I could totally be better at him than it. As it turns out, that's a terrible tactic for impressing men. Um, <laughs> so we're not together. All sensitive like your whole life. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, I've done like a series of really terrible things that have just worked out. So you, you did like amazing things. I was on a dance floor. You were in Mount Fuji. <laughs> hey, I, I really like you. I did die up there. It worked yeah. out. It had nothing to do with games journalism once again, but at the same time, you might impress yourself if you just try to do something stupid for a boy. You know what, though? All the guys yeah, that you're trying to impress, like two thirds yeah. of the stories were combat sports or martial arts related. That's. <laughs> That's you know cool, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I approve. That's awesome. Yeah, that's probably that probably helps with uh, the sexism in <laughs> game journalism too. Well, you know, willingness to throw yourself out there. That's another great tactic. If you want to be good at games journalism, if you're standing in a crowd of people and there's a publicist who's showing a game, and at the very end they say, "Who wants to try it first? Your ass better have your hand in the air yeah. so fast. Mm-hmm. Like you need to jump on that." Because if you go first, like, first of all, everyone's, like, really shy. No one ever really, like, raises their hand. Second of all, if you get to go first, you get to go home earlier and write the preview before everybody else can. Oof. Yeah. I mean, that's like, a great opportunity for a capriari kick right there. Dancing your way out of here. I'm going to dance right you out of here. It's my turn. All right. So my question for you is, who was your absolute favorite interview while you were interviewing people? Yeah. That I could write about or that I couldn't write about? You don't, you don't have to say like, the story, but like, who was your favorite interviewer? Favorite. There was this great, okay, there are two. They yeah. both happened at the same event. It was Tokyo Game Show when yeah. I was working for GamePro. They had a media dinner at Team Ninja, which was a lovely event where they paired you with a developer from Team Ninja, mm-hmm. a translator, and then yourself at a lovely traditional Japanese dinner. Oh, nice. And this guy and I are trying to have a conversation, and I'm using my standard reporter questions, the softball ones, like what games do you like to play when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he asked me the same question because he'd learned somewhere to parrot back questions and that's like a really great tactic by the way is if you're getting interviewed by a reporter that you're scared of ask them the same question and how they would answer it and that will waste three minutes of the interview Mm -hmm. (laughs) so do do that so he was doing that to me and i told him about oregon trail and Mm -hmm. i was describing oregon trail and i mentioned dysentery and the translator did not know that word and had to look it up and shows it to him and he's like what is this disease and so we ended up talking about cholera and dysentery for like an hour because he was convinced that i was just using the wrong word and i must have meant cholera right and i'm like no dysentery Dysentery, yeah cholera and it's a disgusting conversation and of course i couldn't publish any of it but it was a really hilarious interview and he had the best time and so whenever he saw me at tokyo game show after that though he would like make a gesture to indicate pooping (laughs) <laughs> because he'd been trying to mine like diarrhea. Yeah, yeah. Girl. <laughs> clear me up what cholera was. I'm like, I know what cholera is. Dysentery is not cholera. They both involve a lot of shitting. Yeah. And you die from both of them. Anyway, whatever. Guy should totally play Oregon Trail. Um the other great interview was also at Tokyo Game Show was with um God, what is Harada-san's first name? I forget. But he was the lead designer, I think, on Tekken. And I got an interview with him, and I was just talking about um, women in fighting games and Western perceptions of Japanese games and, like, the stuff that we project onto it that's not real. He had, like, there was some comment he gave that was, like, a knock-it-out-of-the-park answer, like, mic drop. And it even translated well into English. That mm-hmm. is so hard to do. Uh, yeah, Katsuhiro Harada, that's his name. And he he was just so fucking game for every question I had. And the translator would translate it, and he would immediately jump into the answer. He wouldn't kind of slow down or hem or haw, repeat himself a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. And I think the quote he gave was something like, at the end of the day, it's good to have your own interpretations of the game, but it's made by Japanese people. There's always going to be something lost in translation there. Mm-hmm. But if people are having fun, that's all that matters to me. It was some, basically like that was the entire mm-hmm. comment. 
It's a really good mic drop comment. Plus, I got to tell him a story about because he asked me if I actually played fighting games, not in a super sexist way, but like mm-hmm. just not really. Do you? Just wondering. Yeah. Well, I explained that when it came to Tekken, like there's a spectrum in fighting games, right? Like you got Virtual Fighter Five on one side where you need to know every combo or you cannot play. Mm-hmm. Then on the other side, you have like Super Smash Brothers. Like mm-hmm. slam your face into the controller and cool things will happen. So Tekken is like to the right of the middle of that spectrum, more toward Virtua Fighter. Yeah. So I'd play it, but if I ever beat my brother in it, he would just turn to me in real life and punch me in the freaking throat if he could reach it. Sometimes he'd get my arm. Um, and I told her out of this, and he's just like, did you hit him back? It's like, yes. How did you know I hit him back? Dude. So that was a good interview. He was a good guy. Uh, I, I have not played Tekken in some time, but I will merge two things that you talked about. Eddie Gordo is the most bullshit character in the Tekken universe. <laughs> if if, uh, if a three-year-old can button smash and just do like infinite chain capoeira combos and take like maybe one hit of damage, yeah, yeah. I think you need to go back to the drawing board. You know, I actually know the guy that did the mocap for that. The guy I took capoeira from was the guy that did the mocap for Eddie. Oh, what's, what's his name? Oh, fuck. I have to look it up. His Capoeira studio is in Emer- is in Piedmont, California, which is in my neighborhood in Oakland. Um, if you look him up, like just look up Capoeira, uh, Piedmont, Oakland, and it should pull up his studio. And he has pictures of himself in the mocap suit with Eddie next to him. Like it is legit. They even had the permission to sell pictures of Eddie on some of their shirts for their team competitions. I thought so. So as soon as you said that, I was like, I bet you, I know who she's talking about. Brandon, remember, uh, he came through at sledgehammer Latif, Latif, uh, Crowder, right? Latif. Was it him? Let me Google this guy now. I'm curious. Cause I haven't seen him in years. Like I did not stick with that class for super long. Painful. Too painful. I, well, I believe it was Latif. him. Is gonna whoop your ass because you call his character bullshit. <laughs> no, 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 no. See, I didn't call Latif's character bullshit. I said the design for how Eddie's combos work. Uh, first of all, if you're a good player, cool you, can, you, you can take on Eddie. All right, that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I, found, I found the studio. Is it Latif? I thought it was Latif. Capoeira Mandinga is the name of the academy, and oh, it's all different now. Oh wow, their pictures are all different. Where is the About Us section? This is where I found it before. Wow, yeah, they're totally different. Wow. I'm, I'm still digging. I'm not seeing his name here uh, right yeah. up. But, yeah, that guy that guy was interesting. I'm so mad they just copied all of Christie's moves from him, though, and she's not nearly as good of a character. Yeah, yeah. And I like playing female characters. Yes, female. That's where it's at, man. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. Like Dead or Alive is one of the most sexist and yet one of the most progressive fighting games. It was one of the only ones that had a near equal roster 50-50 from the start. Mm-hmm. And yet the boobs. Well, Such the boobs. I mean that's, so that's, their game. that's the trade-off, right? Like, I know. <laughs> I hate to say it like that, but that's the trade-off. It shouldn't be that way. I think women with busts of all sizes should have a home in video games. You heard it first, game dev unchained. <laughs> That shouldn't be a thing. Um, let me ask one last fun question just because like we're like we're rolling in it now and we're about done with the podcast. Who Marcella, is Marcella Pereira? That's his name. Oh, OK. So definitely not Latif Crowder. So mm. but it, I have a link on that. When I did my research, it says Latif did do something Eddie Gordo related. So I'll have to check. Probably it out. One of the probably had to get mocap from more than one guy. Most likely. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And Latif's a legit badass. Uh, going back to you. Who is your favorite male or female video game character of all time. Oh man. And why specifically? I, 
come back to her a lot. And I actually just talked about her at PAX on the Section Sexuality panel. Mm-hmm. It's the boss from Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Kojima is another example of a paradox in games where sometimes you have the most sexist interpretation of women in games, mm-hmm. but you also have the most attention paid to women in multidimensional ways in games, mm-hmm. all in Kojima games. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So this wasn't really an interview because I didn't get to publish it. I referenced it like offhandedly in one article, but I remember I got a chance to speak to Kojima after a GDC award that he was given. I had like just five seconds standing next to him. And I said that Meryl's wedding dress was very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And he told me a story about how they did not know what a Western wedding dress would look like. Mm -hmm. So they made a PA go rent one from like a Western costume shop and wear it around the office and they could follow him around him. It was a him, Mm -hmm. follow him around and animate the way the dress moved. Mm -hmm. It was a really interesting story. But the boss I liked because she was so many different types of thing that a woman is. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was supposed to be a mother character. She was also right. supposed to be the bad guy. Yeah. You know, she was a hard ass. She never smiled. But she was also supposed to be this sexual being. And, you know, they reference her her relationship with the sorrow. And she just had so many dimensions to her. And it was so interesting. It's, I don't even know if it's implied or if I just read too much into it. But it seems like she and Snake kind of maybe had sex. I'm not sure. Then a really yeah, weird yeah, yeah. Oedipal kind of thing going on. Like there was a lot to unpack with her. And I really appreciated that they made such a strong character, such a strong adversary. That is one of the toughest boss fights in video games mm-hmm. is hand to handing it with the boss. So she just sticks out to me in my head is such a well-rounded character and you don't even get to play as her, mm-hmm. but I'm sure someone's going to want to knife me for not saying Bayonetta or for not saying, you know, princess peach who did have her own video game. She uses her emotions to control the environment. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, Wait, I'm quite experienced with that video game. I actually really like it. It was cute. I'm, I'm sad that the umbrella didn't like get some merch deal or something. They should re-release it for mobile. That'd be great. I think they're set to, yeah. Well, they, I mean, there's a lot of Nintendo stuff that's going to get re-released on mobile now, so I'm who sure, knows I'm what sure. their plans are. Yeah. So... I have to do one last tradition on the Game Dev Unchained podcast. And AJ, just because you are the, was this the first guest of the new year? No, second, second guest. guest. Second guest. Just because you're an early guest doesn't mean that you can avoid it. So we've been talking to you for an hour and we're very appreciative of that. And in saying thank you to you for, you know, your knowledge bombs that you've dropped and also your really great stories and takes on everything that we've talked about so far. Brandon and I are going to be quiet for as long as it takes. We're going to give you an opportunity to speak directly to our audience and, you know, promote a uh, shout out or even just, you know, say something important to the, the game developers and journalists of the future that you want to reach out to. The microphone and the floor is yours. If you have anything that you would like to promote or draw some attention to, now is your time. The one thing I would say to anybody in games that either you work on them or you play them or you just like talking about them is in the future from now on make a pledge to yourself that if you don't like a game you will not threaten violence (laughs) it's just a video game y'all i mean a lot of us get into this business because we work on fun things it's the toy department it's the candy store it's a place where everybody gets to have a good time and that really does get ruined when you take it too far and you think you're being funny or you think you're making a point and you threaten violence to people who pour their heart and their soul into making something that probably you couldn't make yourself. Oh, snap. Oh, Amen. Man. Yeah, well, uh, we'll see what happens to the section, comment sections. Maybe you get some hate there. I don't know. We'll see what I, happens. Honestly, I hope it blows up. I hope people expose themselves as unable to, like, 
see the reason and merit behind what you just said. Anyone who has a problem with what you just said is like not doing too well in the brain. I, I will say. Uh, was there anything else or should I do myself a dance and get the hell out of here? Oh, thank you so much for your time today, you guys. And I hope that you did learn something valuable. I did. I'm going to look forward to seeing you from here's of the storm. Yes. I'm actually, I'm about to load up right now. I'm, I wasn't kidding. <laughs> like I said, we're uh, friends now. We're doing this. It can spare a couple rounds. It'll be great. <laughs> uh, so AJ, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Thank you for shining some light on journalism, female journalism, female perspective in gaming, and who was the hardest boss battle in all of gaming history. That title goes to a female as well. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast, devoting some time. I'm Larry Charles. No one else is speaking, so I'm just going to say good night. This is Brandon Pham. I'll see you guys next week. Good night, you guys. This is AJ signing off. All right. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to stay in touch or continue to follow our developments, then you need to go to facebook.com forward slash game dev unchained and drop a like and stay in touch. You can also get the direct feed for this podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash game dev unchained.